Hello, hello. Welcome to Life and Things Podcast, everyone. This is Corinne. So I decided to get on here today, um, kind of last minute. I have to leave shortly because my daughter has karate, but um, I just wanted to talk a little bit about some things that I heard today as well as yesterday. Um, one of which is on AccuWeather, the rapid tests that are currently being mailed out and things. On AccuWeather, they actually reported that they have now stated that these tests are not accurate for testing the COVID. I don't know if any of the tests have ever been really accurate from what I've understood and gathered from this whole thing, but it's interesting that they want to continue testing people for a virus that is really very similar to the flu. I know that some people have really severe cases and people have died from it and everything like that, but it comes to a point where it just seems like a money-making commodity. A lot of the deaths that we've now heard from the beginning of this whole pandemic was because they weren't being treated properly. When people came in with really severe symptoms and were brought into hospitals, they just were not being treated properly. Um, I've heard so many different stories and tales of people that have experienced different things. You know, I've heard that people went into a hospital for, and this is after the, the big bad COVID where it shut everything down and there, they weren't taking anybody in for surgeries or anything that were not urgent. Um, but once they started things back up again and people could go for their, their different surgeries that weren't urgent, um, somebody I work with um, told me that one of their neighbors, had, had his wife had to go in for a surgery. And while she was in there, they had her filling out this form. And, you know, as they're doing it, they see this little question at the top that says, you know, is this visit a COVID-related visit or not? You know, so they have a checkbox for it is, and it was already checkboxed. Even though she didn't have COVID, she wasn't there for COVID. She was there for um, a chosen surgery. You know, it wasn't urgent, but it was something that she wanted to have done before it got urgent. They had on there that, you know, it was COVID related. And from what we've learned, you know, through this whole thing is that, you know, because of that, um, because of the fact that hospitals were actually making more money from deaths and things like that from people with COVID, they were kind of cheating the system and saying that everybody had COVID who died in their hospital. I mean, there was very few deaths of it, basically anything else. And healthcare workers have come out about this it's it's a well-known thing that's happened. Maybe not at all hospitals, but definitely there have been hospitals who have done this. Um, so anyways, the rapid tests that are right now being mailed out to people so that they can do their COVID tests are apparently not accurate. And that's what has been reported as of today on AccuWeather. All right, the other thing that I found interesting, which I heard this from one of my YouTubers that I listened to, is that FEMA is putting on a seminar on January 6th. And the name of this seminar is, hold on one second. It is for 
the third edition draft of planning guidance for response to a nuclear detonation. So this is something that it has been put out more than once. It's 241 pages long. Um, and the newest version was updated and put out there for people to review and comment on during this webinar um, on January 6th. And what this does is it actually depicts out scenarios of if, let's say, uh, a nuclear detonation were to happen in a city, what would happen and how would they need to respond? So it says here that the structure of this document is for planning with specific specialties and authorities. Um, chapter three through seven are designated to be pulled out and when combined with chapter one and two from a standalone guidance document. If the planner is only responsible for early medical care covered by chapter four, they would only need chapter one through four. So it says that there's going to be actions that they suggest, activities for the planner to complete, coordination, things that they want them to refer to for information, and things of that sort. So it says here in the introduction that if a nuclear detonation occurs in an American city, it would be one of the most catastrophic incidents in the United States. It says responders must be prepared to address the unique challenges of a nuclear response with careful planning. Many, if not most, lives can be saved if properly planned for. Additionally, preparing and planning for nuclear detonation better equips your community for other natural man-made hazards and disasters such as fire spread, hurricane earthquakes, and radiological incidents. So while the fallout hazard is unique, most aspects of multi-hazard or all-hazard planning and response are applicable to nuclear detonation, response, and planning. Planners and responders bring a wealth of experience and expertise to nuclear detonation response. This guidance provides nuclear detonation information and context to enable planners, responders, etc. So the cool part is, is that they're having this webinar you can Google this webinar. You can actually sit in on this webinar. It has all the information for you to get in, even if you're not a, a responder of any kind. So if you're one of those people who are just kind of intrigued by these emergency disasters, I don't know if they'll kick you out. I've never tried, but they have all the information for you to, to log in and get in there. It says that the primary audience for this webinar would be the emergency managers, law enforcement authorities, fire responders, emergency medical services, hazard material response planners, utility services, public work, works emergency planners, transportation planners, public health planners, medical provider planners, mass care providers, public information officers, local and regional private sector industry capable of bringing logistics support for the immediate response and other emergency planners, planning organizations and professional organizations that represent disciplines that conduct emergency response activities. So in this, they actually have a narrative that they have written here, which I thought was kind of interesting. It's kind of like a storyline. It says this narrative is a fiction depiction of how a nuclear detonation might unfold in a modern United States 
state city. The intention is to emphasize that preparedness is achievable and can save many lives. So Fire Chief Sophia, so this is character number one, Fire Station 52, moderate damage zone, two miles from the Metropolis City Center at 9 a.m. The flash completely blinded Sophia as she drove out of the firehouse after her shift. Her entire field of vision was bright white. She quickly breaks and heard other vehicles doing the same. Still, her car lurches to the left with the sound of a low-speed impact. Her hands, neck, and face felt like they were on fire, and she ducked below the dashboard instinctively. Just as her vision started to return, she heard an overwhelming sound. Her windows cracking, cracked, and her car lurched again. So my assumption is, is that during this depiction of the narrative, this is when the actual blast hit their, their area, since it's in the moderate danger zone. Then they had another person who was the emergency planner, Jaden, City Emergency Operation Center, which was in the light da damage zone, 10 miles from Metropolis. The moderate damage zone, by the way, was pretty much close to the detonation, which I found interesting also because it would be amazing that they would even survive. Metropolis Watch Center was a small windowless room on the third floor of the City Emergency Management Agency building. Dozens of television screens illuminated the walls and the chatter of first responders' radio broadcasts saturated the air. Suddenly, the lights flickered, the television went static, and the radio chatter went silent. Seconds later, the televisions and radios came back with loud exclamations. Do you see that? That is bright. Get City Hall on the phone and find out what's going on. I'm calling the state e EOC, Jaden heard the watch center supervisor order. Equipment lacking backup power briefly went dead before emergency generators kicked in for essential systems. Almost a minute after the initial disturbance, the entire room suddenly shook as if the truck had slammed into the building. I'm going to take a look outside, Jaden announced to the room. As Jaden ran down the hall, he noticed confused coworkers peering out partially shattered windows, stepping out onto the balcony. Jaden saw a massive column of smoke rising over the horizon above Metropolis. So for these instances, they say for nuclear detonation impact, to look at chapter one. Then for looking at chapter six, they have the fire chief Sophia again, where after about a minute, so this is at 9.05, the initial detonation happened at nine o'clock in the morning. They say after about a minute, the fire chief's vision and hearing had almost returned. Seeing no immediate danger, she stumbled to check on the other driver and confirm he was okay. Looking around, the chief was confused. Her vehicle was not on fire, but she had felt like she was getting burned moments ago. 
A large cl cloud hung over the city center, but it looked strange, way too big to move that fast. It was red, black, and brown, but unlike the fire smoke plumes she was familiar with, piercing together the information she suddenly understood and ran back to the firehouse. When she arrived, the station's backup lights were on. She attempted to call dispatch, but the landlines was dead and her cell phone had no signal. She could hear chatter from 80 megahertz radio about a nuclear detonation and tried to respond with her shoulder mic. But the radio failed to transmit. She restarted the radio and tried again. This is the chief from station 52. We can hear you, she successfully transmitted. We're assuming that this was a nuclear detonation and operating according to our protocol call. We're sheltering at the station, monitoring radiation levels with the detonation equipment or with the detection equipment, avoiding outdoor operations unless exposure rates are below 10 MR per hour and updating the city's EOC with our status every 30 minutes. Be advised, roadways in our area are impassable due to the traffic jam caused by blinded drivers. The fire chief knew that there was two immediate hazards after a nuclear detonation, fallout and fire. The best protection from fallout is to shelter, but the best strategy for evol evolving fires is to evacuate. A white cloud top would indicate minimal fallout, but a dark cloud like the one she saw likely means significant fallout levels. Her fears were confirmed as the radio chatter indicated the, that firehouses on the other side of town were seeing high radiation levels. Now we're going back to emergency planner Jaden. And this is once again, it's a narrative. So this is all fake things that they're saying you know, in the instance of this happening. So after Jaden returned to the watch center and explained what he saw, his supervisor announced per our public warning protocols, if we suspect a nuclear detonation, we must immediately distribute a shelter in place warning. We have the prescripted message ready to send to every cell phone, radio and news station within 50 miles of Metropolis but we need sign off from the front office. Unfortunately, city and county leadership were at the event downtown and neither are answering the phone. The agency public information officer responded, the protocol allows flexibility if agency executives are unavailable. You and I can sign off. We have to do this now. So this is a really cool story. Um, that has been come up by that, you know, brought up by FEMA. So this is literally five minutes after the detonation. This is what they're telling the operators that they need to do per the officer's requirements through the protocol. So moving on, it says leveraging FEMA's integrated public alert and warning system network, as well as the city's own opt in emergency communication service, the watch office, distributed an emergency shelter-in-place message to everyone within 50 miles of Metropolis, the fake city, obviously. The wireless emergency alert message distributed to cell phones read, 
This is a message from Metropolis Emergency Management Agency. A nucle nuclear detonation has occurred. To protect yourself and your family, get inside, stay inside, stay tuned for more information, follow instructions from officials. This can save your life. Over the next few minutes, several more WEA messages came through, but not from the city watch office. Two came from neighboring co counties, one from the state EOC, and yet another from the White House. Every message said the same thing, get inside, stay inside, stay tuned. So this is the message that goes out to everybody within the major disaster zone, what they consider to be zero miles out for, to 10 miles. Then it goes to another character that now this is 9.15, so this is 15 minutes after detonation. It says P-I-O, Jose State Joint Information Center, 50 miles from Metropolis. Jose's phone buzzed when he received the emergency alert from Metropolis EOC. The state EOC was officially sheltering in place since they were just 50 miles from Metropolis. Metropolis Watch Center messages made it out just before, just before the state GIC stood up. But the message was aligned with the GIC plan because they were using the same communication plan and pre-approved messages. Jose immediately initiated the phone tree to mobilize the PIO staff. He immediately sent the draft message. A nuclear detonation has occurred in Metropolis. Everyone included responders within 50 miles of Metropolis must immediately get underground or inside the innermost room of a sturdy building. Stay there for 24 hours. Unless you are told to leave, have a medical emergency or shelter is threatened by fire or collapse. So only in the event that there's fire or collapse, they should stay where they are shelter in place for 24 hours. Jose quickly checked his email and saw a message from the Lieutenant Governor. FEMA confirmed the nuclear detonation in Metropolis. Jose quickly sent a message to his media contacts, confirming the detonation, reminding them to disseminate the get inside, stay inside, stay tuned message. He attached the media guide his team had built to answer common safety and technical questions and press send. So now we are still within basically five, 15 minutes of the detonation. Now we're going to three hours out. Emergency planner Jaden, three hours out at noon. Three hours after the detonation, Jaden was staffed with situation unit in the city's EOC. Their task was to receive, aggregate, and map impact reports from the entire city with every 30 minutes. Due to limited operating communication infrastructure in the blast area, most information came from facilities that were equipped with radios like firehouses, police precincts, and hospitals. The internet was too unstable for the EOC to use their online systems. So the situation unit resorted to manual entry into offline spreadsheets and geographic information system programs, also known as GIS. For the time being, radio only communication was a bottleneck. So the information they collected had to remain simple. It, include, 
included reports on casualty, triage, blast damage, fires, and radiation exposure rates. Occasionally, facilities reported their status and resource needs. And this information was relayed to the appropriate emergency support function coordinator in the EOC. Over time, it became clear that the heaviest damage was in a roughly two mile wide area around Metropolis Center, city center. No information was available within half a mile radius, though rapid fallout decay caused exposure rate reports to vary significantly. It was very clear that most fallout materials settled north of the city. Now we're going to Chief so Fire Chief Sophia, Fire Station 52, and this is at 12.25 p.m. So this is about 205 minutes after the exposure. Radiation readings outside was elevated at a few millirotagans, which I don't even know what that is, per hour, MR per hour, but well below the 10 R per hour that would require Sophia's crew to remain sheltered. Station 52 was south of the detonation, and since the city EOC reported that fallout went north, Sophia knew that she was able to act. People with injuries had been arriving at the firehouse since the explosion, mostly from non-life-threatening injuries like cuts and bruises from flying, falling glass and debris. Sophia put her pa paramedic in charge of setting up a ca a casualty collection point and moving casualties to a, a care center at the hospital a few miles south. Using her rig to clear a path, Sophia took the rest of her crew northward, keeping an eye out for fires. Eventually the road became impass impassable and she left the rig near a hydrant and put down the lines for the defense to aid affected people and establish an evacuation corridor. So <clears throat> what I find interesting here is that this is still within the 10 mile radius, right? And they're moving towards ground zero apparently because the fallout went north probably due to winds according to this emergency management plan that they have here and the narrative that they put out in this document. So now they say referred to chapter four, which is early, early medical care. Her crew made headway into the MDZ until she could see almost complete destruction ahead and the radiation levels approached dangerous levels. She knew that ahead lay the severe damage zone, also known as SDZ, where her crew would not be able to safely enter and the possibility of viable survivors was very low. So she could see several fires, but did not have the resources to put all of them out. She ordered her crew to prevent fire spread when possible and protect the evacuation corridor they had established. She knew the buildings around her were probably filled with sheltered people, many of whom were likely injured by the blast. She did not have the time to, or resources to perform building to building search and rescue operations and the fires were spreading and collecting in the area. She raised her bullhorn and said, this is Metropolis Fire Department's 
If you can hear this, please proceed towards the sound of my voice. This area is not safe and you must evacuate. Emergency planner Jaden, still 10 miles out in, from Metropolis, and this is now at 1 p.m. Jaden received communication from the state EOC that FEMA and the state government established a joint initial operation facility at a convention center outside the city. The IOF was tasked with developing a common operating picture of the detonation impact and emergency response efforts, and the city EOC would be included in the upcoming call. The call included representatives from the state EOC, city EOC, FEMA's incident management assistant team, interagency modeling and atmospheric assessment center, and a few neighboring jurisdictions. The state EOC and FEMA staff explained that they had consider, considerable data from the federal assets and con countries near metropolis, counties near metropolis, but almost nothing from the city itself. They were relieved to receive the data the city had been collecting from responders in Metropolis and immediately began merging it with the regional data and the IMAAC models. Since both the city and the state nuclear detonation plans employed the same zone-based response framework, they agreed on a few things immediately. Firstly, no operations would occur in the SDZ. Now remember that's the center, that's the major disaster area. Also, both responders and the public would be urged to continue sheltering indoors if in near areas where radiation levels were immediately hazard, hazardous to health. The dangerous radiation zone, or the DRZ, it was clear the life-saving operation must be search and rescue and medical triage and treatment would be prioritized in the MDZ where the majority of the severe injuries were being reported. Finally, roadways were being blocked and power was out regionally. Therefore, restoration of the critical infrastructure was an immediate priority. The state and federal government were still mobilizing to support the city's res response, but adjacent jurisdictions were supporting response efforts by accepting evacuees, providing contamination screening and decontamination explaining medical care resources and sending first response assets. Over the next 72 hours, a responsible amount of resources would be arriving from across the nation to support the city and state. But the city itself was primarily responsible for a response. So they weren't gonna send anyone else in due to the fact that then they would just be exposing more people. So chapter five of this response talks about contamination screening, decontamination, long-term follow-up for information and contamination screening. So that is the scenario that they put together in this FEMA document called Planning Guidance and Response to a Nuclear Detonation, third edition, just put out in December. I find this really intriguing. I, you know, emergency response and stuff like that has always been kind of like a little hobby of mine as well as being prepared for natural disasters and things of that nature. So when I found out that they had just updated this and that they're having a webinar on January 6th to go over anybody's um, 
thoughts or recommendations for things that might need to change in this document before it's solidified. I just, I thought it was very interesting that this is happening now. I'm not sure when the last one was created. That's probably towards the end of this document, if it, you know, probably. But I'm glad our country's doing these kind of things, you know, because there is always, you know, some form of risk. If we don't have updated plans, then nobody knows what they're doing. And when disasters happen, everyone's just sort of running around like chickens with their head cut off. Um, has a long list, too, of references that they use for each chapter. Yeah, very interesting. Every industry has some form of preparedness that they go through. And I think that it's definitely, it's just definitely needed. All right, so with that being said, um, if you are interested, just Google, it's on FEMA's website, fema.gov, and it's called Planning Guidance for Response to a Nuclear Detonation. Um, again, January 6th is when they're having their little, their little spiel about it. But this document is definitely long. It's 241 pages of information. And I do plan on kind of just perusing the chapters and just seeing what they say to do. Because, you know, as a citizen, you know that in, in any disaster, you know, like whenever we've had hurricanes or whatever, and you happen to be in a hurricane zone, you don't get people out there right away to help you because there's so many people who need help. So... Each one of these chapters, it looks like is, there's seven chapters. Chapter one is nuclear detonation impact. Chapter two is a zoned approach. So the people who are in the blast zone obviously aren't gonna be taken care of at all. They're gonna work on the zones where they know that they can actually help people. Uh, shelter and evacuation. So they're gonna tell everyone to shelter in place. And depending upon how close to the actual detonation you are, or the event will determine whether or not really, you know, sheltering in place is going to help you or not. Um, in a lot of cases, due to the nuclear fallout, you want to get as far away from that detonation as possible, but you also want to pay attention to the wind and what direction that's going because you don't want to follow it. You know, you don't want it to follow you. You know, the fallout, you want to stay out of that area. They're going to send people out for acute medical care for people in the zones where they feel that they could help people. And then there'll be contamination screening, decontaminating people if they can, and figuring out how they're going to follow these people long term. So we're going to put people's names on a list. And really the communication in this, as well as the alerts that they have in place, is going to mean life or death for most people in this sort of an event. And that would just not, it wouldn't even just be like if there's a detonation, but also, you know, let's say one of our nuclear power plants were to have an issue, same kind of thing is gonna, is gonna matter, right? Only they're gonna know where exactly the problem is because they're gonna know the location of that, of that location. When it comes to detonations like this, which obviously would be probably some form of a terrorist attack, um, they're not gonna exactly the situation occurred at. So it's gonna be more of a guessing game and that's why they're collecting data from as many people as they can communicate with throughout the city. 
Very interesting stuff, though. I do recommend that when FEMA or our government puts out things like this, that people do go in there and and just read up on it. I mean, it's there's a lot of information that you can collect from these kind of things. And being that our, you know, every country is going to have its good times and its bad times. It's good to prepare for the bad times or at least know information about it. I remember watching, um, yeah, well, I guess I kind of grew up with it because my mom used to watch disaster movies. It was just her thing. And so, you know, really, I'm not going to say all the information in those movies and shows and things like that that I've watched were 100% accurate, but I have had, you know, I have a little bit more information than those who don't watch those kind of films. You know, if you watch the 911 operator shows and things like that as well, also great information that you can collect because they do research these things before creating those shows. Otherwise, someone's going to debunk what they've said and then they're going to be, you know, get bad publicity. So <clears throat> it says here that the damage zones are put into four zones. The severe damage zone, which is nearly all buildings are destroyed, few survivors, and the hazardous outdoor radiation levels will be too extreme. Basically, that's a no-go for them. They're not going to go into those zones. Moderate damage zone would be where there's significant building damage, light building destroyed, um, blowout interior and large buildings, Utility poles are going to be down, fires, significant number of mad, major injuries. Early medical assistance can significantly improve number of survivors in that zone, and that's called the moderate damage zone. If you're in the light damage zone, nearly all windows shattered and damage to buildings. There is damage to buildings, but some or most of it of the injuries that are, are incurred due to the damage are from flying glass and debris so you that you know so that glass is going to go up and then it's going to send out like a, a wave of a blast and once it gets to the light damage zone immediate medical care will be necessary but not as necessary as the moderate damage zone as, as it's saying here and then beyond that is where there might be windows broken doors blown and uh primarily on the side facing the blast and there will be few, if any, minor injuries. So if you want to be in any zone, you really want to be in that zone. <laughs> they say here that severe damage zone in the red. Oh, this is depend. This actually shows you like a document on miles from ground zero depending upon how many kilotons the blast is. So really it depends on how big the, the blast is or the, the, <laughs> the detonation device, I guess, is as to how far out it's going to travel and how big those severe damage zones are gonna end up being. I know that they say not to look directly into the blast because it can cause blindness. So I thought that was pretty interesting. <laughs> Causes blindness. 
as well as the heat from it, depending upon how close it you are to it, could cause surface burns on your skin. Yeah, this is just a lot of information, lots and lots of information. Um, I thought it was interesting that they talked about the color of the smoke that came up from it. They're saying that if the smoke comes out white, that they know that the amount of radiation or fallout that's gonna happen will be, be way less, but the darker the cloud, the more fallout. So that I thought was really interesting. Yeah, radiation exposure is not a joke. All right. Well, I just wanted to share that with everybody. Um, I thought that this document was intriguing. And, you know, a lot of times these documents are created and are out there and then nobody really ever knows about them. So I'm going to post this episode on my regular episode list. And on there, I'm going to put a link to this document just in case you're curious. Um, I do recommend you guys knowing all of the local emergency preparedness documentation that is put out there by, by FEMA, by the CDC. You know, I mean, a lot of these things would have come in handy if a lot of people knew about things like, okay, um, outbreaks and things like that. I know there's movies that people have watched, but it doesn't go into great detail. So, but they have emergency preparedness plans for just about anything that could go wrong from a pandemic, like what we've been through to a nuclear issue to um, a meltdown of a reactor from some sort of um, power facility. You know, they've got things for everything. It just takes somebody searching it out or seeing that it's been updated and putting it out there so that people know where to go find it. Um, yeah. So look for this. It's, it'll be posted in the, in the information below the, this episode. And once again, be safe out there, have fun. And thank you so much for listening.